Welcome to the Owl Hoot Podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. This is a show for any person interested in the environment and sustainability. I arrived at a point in my own life where I wanted to know more about the state of our planet and how I can play my part, albeit small, in mitigating climate change, reducing pollution and supporting biodiversity. I decided that chatting to others who are already doing something might be a good place to start. So each episode will feature a different guest telling their stories in and around an environmental activity that will perhaps provide you with ideas that you can incorporate into your own life. Enjoy listening and let me know if you have a topic you'd like to hear more about on the podcast and I'll do my best to address it. On the podcast today is James Dyke, Assistant Director of the Global Systems Institute and Programme Director of the MSc Global Sustainability Solutions at the University of Exeter. He is also a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, a member of the European Geophysical Union and contributes to the editorial board of the journal Earth System Dynamics. He regularly writes about the environment, climate and policy for the iPaper and contributes to The Ecologist, Guardian, The Independent and The Conversation, a science-based news website. James's first book, titled Fire, Storm and Flood, The Violence of Climate Change, is due to be published in August this year. James is fascinated with the Earth system and focuses his research and teaching on how we interact with the Earth and what this means for human life now and in the future. So let's find out more as I welcome James to the podcast. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. You are more than welcome. So I'm going to start off as I always do and get a bit of background as to how you came to be in the field of studying, uh, researching Earth system dynamics and all that that pertains. So if you give me a bit of background and that would be great. Oh, where do you begin? It... <laughs> Was it a so childhood start... dream? <laughs> yeah. Where do we start our story? About 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago now, wasn't it? I was a research scientist on a international astrobiology project. So we were looking for life elsewhere in the universe, under what conditions life may start, how did life start on Earth, how, how may we be able to detect life on other planets. And, and that was my dream job. I mean, it really was. I absolutely loved it. And it was in an amazing institute and I had opportunity to meet just incredible people and do stuff that I found completely absorbing and fascinating. But I wasn't really happy because thinking about life on other planets, well, one way that we detect them is because they would necessarily affect their atmospheres. They would, you know, cause disequilibrium. They would change the, the composition of the gases. They would change maybe even the rocks. And um, that's certainly been the case on Earth. And there's a particular species right now that's having a transformative effect on Earth. And we know that those transformative effects are probably not going to be very good for us and the other species that we share the Earth system with. So I became increasingly concerned and interested in the research aspects of anthropogenic climate change, but then also what we call the climate and ecological emergency, because we're affecting pretty much the entire Earth system. So ever since then, I've kind of dragged my research and teaching interest to something a little bit more contemporary so because whilst it'd be amazing to find life on a planet orbiting a star you know 100 light years away it's not going to really change things down here on earth and we are in really 
desperate situation right now. It's kind of all hands to the wheel. So that's kind of why I've washed up doing the things that I do, I guess. Okay. So for anyone that's kind of aware that there's something going on, but isn't really sure what, what that is, could you just give a sort of a brief overview of why we got to this emergency that you described? What is it that we've been doing to get here? Another big question. These are good, Sorry. aren't they? <laughs> so how do we get to this situation? So some people talk about our current circumstances being some kind being captured by this notion of the Anthropocene. So the idea of the Anthropocene is that the impacts that humans are having are so profound, so wide ranging on the Earth system that we've actually produced a new geological epoch. So if people or maybe some of my aliens from that planet, you know, hundreds of light years away were to visit the Earth in five or 10 million years time, we won't be here anymore. Homo sapiens won't be here, but they will see a record of us and our civilization. They will find strange concentrations of rare Earth minerals. They'll see concentrations of radioactive isotopes. They'll um, see uh, very, very rapid climate change as evidenced in ice cores, such that there will be ice cores left or in the sediments at the bottom of, of the deep oceans. And perhaps most profound of all, they'll just see across all the continents of the earth, a comparative, well, you know, essentially a sudden disappearance and vast amounts of biodiversity in any large animals, large animals greater than maybe 20 kilograms or something in most places would have just suddenly disappeared. So we become this kind of geological force. So when we talk about climate change and we're worried about the impacts that humans are having on the climate, we certainly should be really worried about that because we are producing an impact on the climate. We're driving the climate faster than it has been driven for maybe millions, probably tens of millions of years, just the, the rate of change that we're producing on the Earth system. And we know that's going to be bad. But that's kind of just one thing that we're doing. We're also profoundly affecting, you know, the biodiversity, the, the land, the oceans, the way the Earth system itself works. And there's increasing reasons to think that we can push these systems so hard before they don't necessarily break. There won't be a snapping point, but the way in which they work could be fundamentally altered. And we completely rely on the way these things work right now. So it's a it's a very interdisciplinary, um, holistic approach, really, of trying to understand what this particular species, Homo sapiens, has done over really, you know, rapid. I mean, geologically speaking, it's kind of instant few centuries, maybe a few thousand years, 10,000 years, if you think about the advent of farming. But from a biosphere, which is about 3.7 billion years old, or a planet which is about 4.6 billion years old, these are really, really very rapid developments in its history. So obviously there was quite a long time where we were living on Earth where we weren't impacting it detrimentally. Now, all of a sudden, everything we seem to be doing is problematic. What are the key things that we are doing now that is causing climate change? In a word, it's energy. In two words, it's carrying capacity. So previously, when we were because um, humans have migrated out of Africa for the last, I don't know, 60, 70,000 years or so, established permanent populations on the other continents. And when we did that, initially, we would have had some kind of technologies. We would have had, you know, tools and, and fire. But our, the numbers of our populations, our carrying capacity, would have been determined by how many 
things can we hunt how many um you know fruits and berries can we can we harvest or gather it would have been necessarily a very low impact kind of lifestyle and when you look at indigenous peoples today hunter gatherer indigenous people and there are still some the kind of lifestyles the kind of ways of living that they have evolved or co-evolved with those ecosystems in which they live in are necessarily low impact because if they were higher impact then they would deplete the resources that they rely upon so there might be some kind of slash and burn agriculture but it's limited in scale and allows the land to recover um, there's this notion that you're living in an ecosystem which has got values and rights in and of itself so it's not just a resource which you appropriate you're in a kind of a in a balance with this system you're a part of that system that system is a part of you now all that changed really with the advent i suppose of farming and civilization where you're beginning to increase the amount of food you might increase the amount of energy that you can produce for a unit of land by basically growing things that you want and then killing everything else that would otherwise eat those things, whether it's pests or insect pests or, you know, birds or something. And then the increasing complexity of civilization, which allows a kind of hierarchy, um, a structuring of civilization of society, such that you've got lots and lots of people who are producing surplus and then a small, relatively small elite, which are coordinating controlling. And that's the sort of story for about, you know, 10,000 years or so until some clever um, fellow uh, worked out that you can extract tremendous amounts of energy from fossil fuels. So then the last 300 years of the story of our development on the Earth system has been one of being able to extract phenomenal amounts of energy from coal initially, then oil and gas. And once you unleash that energy, once you, you kind of uh, become almost unlimited in your ability to affect the earth system, then that's where the problems really do escalate and they increase exponentially. And essentially it's one of which we consume things and then we produce waste. We literally throw things away. We either throw it through the exhausts of our uh, internal combustion engines or our power stations, or we throw it through you know, refuse and garbage in terms of plastics pollutions or, or mineral pollutions. And all those pollutions have been building up very very quickly so the earth system has always had a capacity to absorb what we consider to be pollution it's got these kind of natural regulatory processes but they're finite in scale and they can only work for so long and so what we've done in a few centuries is basically swamped them and swamped them to the scale now that the system is kind of beginning to bite us it's beginning to change in ways that ultimately would limit our ability to create pollution because we won't be here anymore mm. And that, that is a, a real threat of which perhaps it's not known so widely. I think everyone is sort of aware, or perhaps they're aware of climate change, but do they really believe it will lead to potentially the, our extinction uh, or that they really, you know, that they believe that perhaps someone will come in with a rescue plan, please. <laughs> Let that be you, James. Um, so, what what can we do? We're clearly in a problem where we're producing too much uh, energy, as you, as you mentioned, uh, by burning fossil fuels. This It sounds simple. Oh, let's just stop burning fossil fuels. It's not that simple. It's not. No, the way in which I sometimes try to imagine it is like you're on a plane at 30,000 feet and you've you know that if you continue to 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 burn the fuel in the engines, you know, the whole thing is going to blow up. 
but somehow we can't land the thing. So somehow you meant to you could change the entire propulsion system of this aircraft whilst it's still in the air without it crashing. Because if we were to, for example, stop all burning of fossil fuels tomorrow, our civilization, our globalized industrialized civilization would collapse and probably billions of people would die. You know, fossil fuels are intimately involved in the production of the food system, just the nitrogen fertilizer, but then all the machinery that we use to, to grow crops and then to move it around and the, the uh, keep it chilled and stop it from spoiling. Um, not to mention just the electricity that that we absolutely need in in pretty much every country now. So we can't just, you know, there's no power button that we can just press to stop this thing somehow we've got to radically change track and i suppose the the general consensus is or certainly i think the way it's it's um presented if in the media if i may use that word is that the challenge is to take the coal oil and gas out and then put in i don't know wind wave solar renewables maybe nuclear um tidal whatever just the it's like changing the batteries right so we've got to change the nasty fossil fuel batteries and then plug in the the other one and um, in some respects, over longer timescales, if we're thinking about what we need to do over maybe centuries, maybe decades, you can see in 200 years time or so, a world that's largely powered by um, solar power, let's say, because there's an awful lot of it. The problem, of course, is we've got to deal with the system that we've got right now. And one of the challenges is there are tremendous forces that don't want us to change out the fossil fuel battery, thank you very much. They want us to keep using coal, oil and gas because that's how they've accumulated all their wealth, power and influence. So it's um, as soon as you start thinking about those things, you take what seems to be a very, well, I mean, relatively straightforward sort of science technological engineering challenge into a really, really complicated, messy economics politics sociology it's a it's a classic kind of a wicked problem it is just stepping back into your own research did you know that you were going to have to touch economics and psychology and behavior and everything else because it touches as you say every every aspect of our lives there's there's lots of resistance to not want to do that <laughs> I, don't, I don't want because i mean what do i like to do i like to make simple little models of things Right. I mean, just generally speaking, simple little mathematical models of little worlds and you can see what happens and you can imagine them and you can play around with them. I mean, we call them toy models sometimes. And they're, they're, they can be beautiful and discreet and simple and elegant. You can understand them. And then you then you look at the real world and you kind of recoil in horror. And it, it and it's just it's such a mess, right? So I completely understand how many scientists, especially physical scientists, climate scientists, they draw a very clear line. You know, they say, look, I'm going to do my science, I'm going to do really, really good science. But you know, all the other stuff that I kind of know is important, we'll put that in a big bucket called politics, right? And I've got absolutely no interest in, in looking into that, but I'm certainly not getting my hands dirty, right? So I have tremendous respect with those people who do in terms of their academic practice, in terms of their day job, in terms of their research and their teaching, and then also maybe the work they do beyond academia. And it's absolutely, because if we don't do that, nothing's going to happen. You know, we're not going to, you know, we can have the most elegant solutions. We can, on paper, we can have all these fantastic ideas. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you realise what's going to be useful and what's not. Yeah, and then I guess the only other thing I want to say about that point is that it's very easy to cast it in terms of an adversarial battle. Sometimes you hear about the war on climate change and there are these deniers over here and there are the climate skeptics and there is the believers and 
And if you spend, you know, more than 30 seconds on Twitter or social media, you'll see just how completely pointless yeah. that, that debate is because it's just two groups of people shouting kind of schoolyard insults to each other. You know, the real job is to is to get engagement from the people that you want and make the kind of rapid progress that we need to dealing with the things that we have you know and i would desperately want for a different kind of social political economic system but unless you've unless you're able to work with the people who can affect change and think about how you may be able to affect change i probably argue you're not really contributing very much for you was there was there a moment because it sounds like you have stepped out of that academic bubble um, and gone to the, the dark side. <laughs> I've really put yourself out there and tr trying to make an impact with what with the knowledge that you've gained. Uh, who is it you're, you're trying to reach out to? And what's that experience been like getting out of your bubble? Yeah, it was about I, I remember about 10 years ago, um, thinking about increasing sense of frustration and you know and seeing this increasing gap i mean one of the gaps i was i've and actually i've become more worried about over time is the gap between what seems to be discussed in climate policy or science circles and then what seems to be discussed in terms of how the media or, or society seem to progress this this issue and there just seems to be this huge chasm between what people think is going on and what i would argue is perhaps really going on and it was about 10 years ago that I felt I made this conscious decision that I wanted to put my head above the parapet, kind of actually, and I didn't know what, I don't know what I'm doing. I still don't know what I'm doing, but I wanted to do something. And of course, the minute you do, you kind of get it shot off. By, uh, in the first instance, it's the classic, you know, the climate skeptics and the deniers and things who, to be honest, over time, I've almost become quite fond of because <laughs> they've come up with such outlandish ideas and these kind of ridiculous ridiculous things they say and but with such passion it's almost I can almost respect it in a way it's, it's um they're so driven and I might want to argue misguided that I think over time at least from my part I've kind of established a kind of grudging respect for that right but I don't think that's really a problem anymore we've gone past you know it's not getting warmer you know well what about it's raining or it's cold now you know the problem that we've got now is another kind of what we call a discourse of delay, which is, don't worry, we've got this, you know, it's okay. Um, we're going to do everything we need to do to avoid dangerous warming. And on that, I think I'm becoming increasingly skeptical. And on that, I think that's where, where I think we might have a, an important responsibility to, to, to say, look, it's great that everyone's talking about this and it's great that there are these promises and we can do all this by 2050 and, you know, the sudden explosion of renewable, all this is absolutely fantastic. But, you know, winning slowly is not much better than losing fast, as Bill McKibben once said. Um, if we don't really get our act together and deliver on these this, this fine language, then to be honest, in some respects, we're actually no better than just denying the whole problem ever existed in the first place. Um, so I think that sort of charts my evolution and of becoming more vocal about things, I guess. The point you make there is that it does need to be done now. Uh, can you explain yeah. why it needs to be done now? It needs to, I mean, it should have been done 30 years ago. Let's be honest. If we'd have, if we'd have responded and you can always play the what if, you know, what if Al Gore was elected, you know, those however many a couple of hundred votes had gone the other way or something 
you know what what if in in 92 we'd actually really delivered on the idea of of the the original kind of um united nations framework convention on climate change where it where it established for the first time that we are having a dangerous interference in the earth's climate and we need to reduce emissions quite quickly in order to you know back out that dangerous interference you know but we didn't right so one that means we've got decades of delay and in in those decades of delay i mean to put it into context in the 30 years since you know the first earth summit humans have put more carbon dioxide in the earth's atmosphere than they did in the previous 200 or 300 years right so we've been talking about it and we've been saying lots of fine things but emissions every year have just been going up we're at the point now that if we want to limit warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, which was the agreed kind of threshold from the Paris Agreement in 2015, at current rates of emissions, we might have as little as five years. And then no more burning of fossil fuels. You know. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen, right? There's, there's just, it's not going to happen. So what is, seems to be happening is rather than people say we have we kind of failed to do that. And it was a monstrous failure. And some people, many people will be impacted. Many people will be displaced. And unfortunately, many people are going to die because of our delay. What can we do to, to mitigate as much as possible that harm? How can, we, how can we ensure that we try and protect as many people as we can at the same time as doing the radical carbon cuts that we need to ensure that we don't go even further? We are instead inventing these kind of stories where we'll be able to take out, you know, millions of tons of carbon from the Earth's atmosphere and therefore sort of stretch the budget that we had. Right. So if you were to ask me what we need to do right now, we need to every time a politician or a company or an organization says they've got some kind of net zero goal, uh, we demand what are you doing right now? So tomorrow, what's going to be different? Um, what's going to be different next week and what's going to be different next month and then next year? And if they don't answer those questions then they're i wouldn't say they're lying i wouldn't say they're being dis you know not, they're not intending to deceive but i think they're they're spinning more fantasies we've got yeah. to the point where we have to undertake really quite radical action um and that might mean we've got to stretch some of the things that politicians think are possible or maybe uh, stretch some of our preconceptions about how economic systems are meant to work but let's do that and let's be honest about the situation that we're in rather than, you know, these con these kind of wishful thinking about some point in the middle of this century, technological innovation is going to save us somehow. The point about these technological solutions, as I understand it, they've been built into the models that say we can we can get to where we need to. Why have they been built in? Why have they been assumed that they'll they'll work and then they'll be able to scale up and then it'll solve everything. This is such a good question. So I think many people, when I talk about, they're called integrated assessment models. And what they do is they've got big complicated E-type models of the economy. And then depending on how the economy changes over time, how it gets powered, it will produce a certain amount of carbon dioxide then that certain amount of carbon dioxide will increase concentrations and therefore it will kind of produce a warming. So you can get lots of different scenarios. You've got the classic business as usual one, which is basically we burn all the fossil fuels we can. We go, we go, you know, bonkers for coal and we just keep burning coal. And then by the end of this century, we've got five degrees plus of warming and then probably the collapse of civilization. But the interesting thing about these integrated assessment models is no feedback loop whereby they, they factor in that you've got five degrees of warming and then what does that have on the economy? 
it just assumes that the economy can produce that kind of warming that carries on, you know, um, happily enough, actually. Now, the thing is, when you look at the these kind of models and their use of negative emission technologies, uh, our ability to capture carbon maybe from the air and then store it deep underground, you may think that the reason these things are in those models is because scientists and engineers have designed them and built them and they've figured out, well, they can withdraw. This plant could uh, take out 100,000 tons of carbon from the Earth's atmosphere over five years or something, and it's going to cost about, well, I don't know, like 20 million or so, you know. But they don't. In fact, they're completely fictional. The, the reason these technologies have been introduced in the models is because by introducing into the models, you can extend your carbon budget and you don't have to decarbonize so fast now. If I imagine by 2050, our global civilization can withdraw 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the Earth's atmosphere every single year, then the budget that I've got as a policymaker is much, much larger. So I don't need to make what I would consider to be expensive cuts in carbon emissions right now. I can, and if I'm challenged, and somebody says to me, well, how on earth is that compliant with the Paris Agreement? How are we going to limit to 1.5? I can say, well, look, because by the middle of this century, we would have deployed all this stuff. But of course, when you look into the models, you know, when you try and, well, when you well, put it this way, when you, when you look at the emperor, you realize he doesn't have any clothes, right? Because there's literally nothing in it. I mean, just today, there was a, there was a story in The Guardian, which looked at the cost of carbon capture for Drax, which was the big coal-fired power station. I think Europe's biggest coal-fired power station. And for the last few years, it's been burning coal, um, burning wood instead of coal. And now they're going to capture the carbon. Da, da, da. Nobody's really figured it out how they're going to do that. And now the numbers they're coming up with are just enormous, you know, billions of pounds. But these technologies were invented, uh, these fictitious technologies were invented because they were kind of cooking the books, I think. Disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, seem, there must be some collusion somewhere in there that, that people are living in such a fantasy land. I don't understand how, how, how that gets to the point of everybody going, yeah, that's fine. Well, well look, I mean, I don't... Mm, I need to be sensitive about how I might want to describe this, but you can see there are mutually reinforcing feedback loops in that system. Certainly as an academic, I'm, I am incentivized to think about ways that we could remove carbon from the Earth's atmosphere because I'm going to get a nice big grant about it, right? So yes. the government is, is funding, and not much, to be honest, but there's going to be an awful lot more given that we've banked the, the house on it, right? So, you know, I'm quite incentivized to, to sort of play along with this game and think of, well, you know, when it comes to this this element of a model, yeah, we, we could maybe draw down that much amount of carbon and I could get a grant that could look at that and write some papers, which could then be used in next kind of assessments, which then provide evidence that, you know, so that it's, quite a kind of almost cozy consensus really where we can we can mutually reinforce the idea that we can withdraw large amounts of carbon and i think it's fair to say that we just haven't done the maths at all on how we're going to deploy at scale how and how much it's going to cost or even you know long-term geological sequestration there's been one two pilot projects which have looked what happens when you inject carbon dioxide deep into the earth's ground of course once it's there it's got to have to stay there for thousands of years no good if it starts bubbling out next century because then we could have a rapid period of warming so lots of these things 
you would think, well, yeah, I guess the your feasibility assessments, but the risks that are involved, because if these things do not work, you know, we're really cooked, you know, we, we, we're in a terrible place. Yeah. So given the stakes and how important it is, you would be, um, you'd be forgiven to thinking that an awful lot of work has been done in terms of the feasibility and the assessments. And I just don't think that's the case. Is it too naive to think that we should just be investing this sort of money in the things that we know that work like the solar like the wind and have everything covered in a in a solar pv panel uh, is why is that not happening at the same time i know i know it is happening to a degree obviously mm. that is is starting to scale up but why isn't why isn't everyone going oh my goodness that looks great let's jump on that there's been this exponential increase in solar, you know, the price of solar has just crashed. The deployment in solar is just going up. And every time the International Energy Authority would do a report on its estimates for solar, it'd always be woefully below the curve of where it is. So there's there's lots to be optimistic about in terms of our ability to produce innovation in this instance and wind as well, right? Onshore, offshore wind. And we could, with sufficient uh, motivation and incentive so initially it was like things like feed-in tariffs and government support to get the ball rolling but then now we're able to generate electricity you know much much cheaper than coal oil and gas it's the we're able to produce electricity the cheapest kind of electricity that we've ever made because just the scale of innovation has been so fast and that's great right that's that's really positive but it hasn't actually replaced globally the use of fossil fuels it's basically there's been it's just been added to it Right. And the reason it's been added to it is because our economic system is one that also grows exponentially. Three percent global growth each year. That system is, you know, it's um, it's only ever getting larger and it only ever gets larger than the amount of energy it requires and the amount of material resources it requires also grows larger. So whilst there's been a phenomenal increase in renewables, it's barely keeping up with the rate of growth of our global civilization itself you can imagine it like an organism with the metabolism it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger so one obvious thing is well maybe we should look at the assumption that we need to just continually grow our economies because for many economies there is an awful lot of wealth but maybe the problem is it's the distribution of wealth with regards to human needs rather than the total amount of it right and then of course we're well into politics <laughs> we're, we're, we're deep into the kind of degrowth literature now, how far along that line I walk, I don't know, but I think one thing that's really important for us to do is to is to look at and challenge the assumptions of never-ending growth. Because as soon as you stop that, as soon as you say, look, well, what if we didn't have to every year generate more electricity and, and consume more resources? Why we could, for example, you know, maybe look at distributing them in different ways. However you do it, I don't know, right? But the minute you do that, you suddenly got all these other options about how we're going to avoid dangerous climate change because you don't have to keep running faster just to just to stay still. So I think that's an important that's an important debate which is not going to go away. I think, um, and there's issues you know, and you can be related to other issues about secular stagnation in economic theory or something, but um, the the primacy of growth is probably going to be have to be uh, addressed in the not too distant future. Yeah. As you quite rightly say, it, um, it hope, opens a whole different can of worms, which is again a very large beast in its own right. <laughs> Politics and economics and GDP. Coming back to you as as what you're trying to do, 
within your capacity. You did a brilliant production of a film a couple of years back. What made you decide to do that? Two things. It wasn't my film. It was Paul Maple's film. So he's the person behind Global Documentary and it's all his fault because he convinced me to do it. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't do it again, oh. given how much time it took. It was ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, you look at watch, you watch something on the telly and of course, you know that they must do things more than once and you've got to maybe go to a location and presumably somebody writes the script and someone edits it. So you don't, you know, 30 minutes of TV must take longer than just 30 minutes. But I had no idea how involved and time consuming and, and laborious and how much is essentially wasted, how much you how much you record or capture and you don't ever use. And so that was a real learning experience to <laughs> learn never do it again. But it was it was useful and I thought really, really good because we did a, a whole program of work around community screenings and and groups and organizations to show the film. And sometimes Paul or I would go to where you could have a Q&A, there'd be a panel discussion, there could be. So it was really a kind of like a conversation starter, um, an opportunity for people to get together to think about what does climate change or the climate and ecological emergency mean to them where they live and the kind of things that they might be able to do maybe imagine new ways of thinking about it so it was really good you know i'm i'm very very glad that we did it but it was yeah it was an awful lot of work <laughs> yes well I, I can say as a viewer i thought it was very valuable it's it's the kind of thing you can you can put in front of anybody and they go okay now i am i i know what's going on it's you know it's for, i would definitely recommend that that's going in the show notes for sure well that's great <laughs> What I will also say is you've obviously done a lot of writing outside of the academic publications in various different means. Again, why have you decided to do that? As an academic, you get used to writing things that no one ever reads. So you write. The biggest thing typically you do as an academic beyond writing books is your things like a PhD thesis, which two people will read, maybe three, your internal examiner, your external examiner and maybe your partner or something like girlfriend, boyfriend, if you really make them proofread it or something. So the idea of writing for an audience and was really just some way of trying to generate a bit more impact. I mean, it feels that as an academic, you're often kind of, you're looking at, looking at academia from outside of academia. You see these people strangely dressed and, and kind of screaming and shouting and running around, but they're behind sort of kind of, um, a, they're in a soundproof booth. <laughs> you just can't hear them. They just don't, they're not having an impact. They can't really do anything. Now, saying that, I do have friends and colleagues who do produce impact. I mean, they're the people who do work on tipping points in the climate system or planetary boundaries, you know, these really big, important papers and programs of research. And I was never going to do that. Right? I don't think I'd ever be that smart or, um, or patient. So for me, writing for different types of publics, either through a newspaper or some kind of online website or something, was... I suppose born of that sense of frustration that I thought we need to be talking about these things a bit more when there needs to be, a, I'm not necessarily trying to argue a particular point, although sometimes I guess I do, but let's at least talk about it, right? Let's at least have a good, these kind of grown up discussions about where we're heading. Cause uh, often this, the, let's say the quality of debate that you do see online or in print or in, in media it's just woefully inadequate you know we're not we're not really talking about the things that are important yes i think it's a it's a good way of getting the message out there to, to a wider 
well to, to many different types of people as well and switching on people to where we're at in terms of climate mm. you, you've also got a book coming out this summer again is that, does that come from wanting to have some sort of more impact or, or in sharing what you know kind of yeah so that was a strange project which evolved from the uh, unipress was the the publisher which kind of commissioned the idea and they were thinking about a, a photographic essay based on climate change now initially i thought that's a bad idea because it's going to be 100 photographs of polar bears right but then when when we were talking about it really i i thought it was a way to be able to try and explain what climate change is in a broader earth system context. And that came from a number of conversations I've had with people, many too, too many conversations where the opening line has been, well, you know, the earth's climate has always changed. So why should we worry about it now? And they're completely right. The earth's climate has changed, you know, 252 million years ago, there was a period of rapid climate change that pretty much killed everything on earth. <laughs> but, but of course that's why we should be worried about climate change because previously that was produced by massive, Vol volcanism kind of very violent geological forces well now it's us mm. you know and everyone's heard of the what we call the kt impact event the thing that made the uh, the dinosaurs go extinct and that was a great big asteroid and so nowadays people talk about humanity as being the asteroid the impact that we're having on on the earth system and we're not going to be immune to that already we're seeing people suffering already people unfortunately going to be dying as a consequence of our impacts on the climate as our impacts on the earth system so the book tries to do two things it tries to maybe give a broader context for how the earth has changed over time and the role of climate change in that and sometimes the role of life and then i suppose the latter part is why we should be really worried about it yeah. and um it was a difficult book to write because it was in the middle of a lockdown uh, very disruptive and also just meditating on all the ways things have gone badly wrong and how they might go badly wrong to the future was was quite I think one of the people that the publisher said it was a sobering last third of the book but I hope it's going to be useful nonetheless before I get on to the last two questions I can't not ask because of what you just said how do you manage the being all the time in this quite difficult space where you've got you can't unknow all the knowledge that you know um, and obviously it's running at this like a runaway train and you're desperately trying to do what you can. How do you manage to stay uh, positive and active rather than going, oh my goodness, this is too much? I do consider myself to be incredibly fortunate to be able to do the work that I do because I'm genuinely motivated, interested and fascinated by it. And I do meet all these cool people, you know, in terms of the lifestyle, really, I think I'm just... Um, you know, imposter syndrome is rife in academia, the idea that you don't belong. Um, and I've certainly got it just as bad as everybody else. And I think in some respects, I kind of continue to get away with it. So I do consider myself very lucky. When it comes to the other stuff, like the dark side, sometimes taking a broader perspective helps. You know, when you think about the earth is, you know, billions of years old and, and life, whatever we do, life will carry on. We as individuals uh, uh, are members of a species and that species itself is just a, a manifestation of a process which began 3.8 billion years ago and it's going to continue on for another billion years or so, I suppose, depending on what the sun does. So there's broad context that you can take a lot of, lot of just solace, I suppose, but, you know, maybe even kind of spiritual support, you know, but the, the deeper engagement you have with the earth and you realise just how incredible and beautiful it is and how privileged we are to be here right now to witness it. All that, 
all that's true and none of that you know none of that changes when you think about all the destructive things that humans have done and then i suppose just generally i am perennially optimistic you know there are some people dark mountain deep adaptation people who are pretty much convinced that that's the end of us thank you you know that's we are necessarily entrained towards collapse and some really really bad outcomes i do still like homo sapiens i think they're really nice and i think uh, all the terrible things they've done and will continue to do there's still something really important in in that species in us and also the civilization that we've produced so i suppose i'm i'm optimistic and also i suppose just in from an instrumental point of view if you get and i've seen this happen to myself actually and maybe some other people if you meditate too closely on all, all the frustrations it becomes incredibly disempowering and you end up not doing anything actually you just you might have various kind of mental health problems uh, you get depressed you get disengaged um, and you're not going to be a, you're not going to be able to make any kind of positive contribution so just for practical terms i think there's an awful lot to be done in 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 the context of also finding those people who you know are doing the right things who've got those kind of you know positive stories and positive solutions there's just so much of it you know we're at yeah, risk of yes. focusing on all the negative stuff but there are some amazing people out there doing some incredible stuff that leads me to the last two questions you said earlier about what people could do was call out companies organizations that say oh we're going to do this by 2050 what else would you say or is there anything else you'd say that as an individual uh we because obviously that there's the whole you know organizations have got to do their bit business politics they're all mm. important but what as people as an individual can they do i think the most important thing that you, you can do to begin with is to talk about this with other people because you can influence people much much more than you think and also by talking to people you find people who share your values and cares and considerations and passions and they're going to be able to support you along that journey because it's going to be a long journey i mean we're going to be doing this for the rest of our lives right um no and there might be the odd weekend off <laughs> but this is it's a it's a multi-generational challenge that we've got I and mean, we might really think about a multi multi-generational journey you know or a voyage that we're going to undertake and we need to be able to sustain ourselves and support ourselves and also and grow other people to that to that journey to you know recruit other people to that course so certainly talking to people reaching out and finding people because when you're working with others you'll be able to get their support and you know collectively you're going to be much much stronger there's nothing more disempowering i find than people being beaten with a stick which is making you feel bad about your own carbon footprint because then it's all about the individual and what we do as individuals and absolutely there's lots of things that we can do you know there's lots of things we can do to reduce our own carbon emissions and we need to, especially in the richer nations such as the United Kingdom. But being able to work collectively towards those kind of progressive ends is going to be really important. So then it's about, you know, who do you vote for? How are you engaging with your elected representatives? Are you telling your MP or your local council that these things are important to you? Number of times I talk to an MP and they say, well, they just nobody ever tells me about it. Nobody ever nobody ever comes to clinic or surgery and saying they're worried about this. So we need to be really vocal about our participation in the in the various kind of um, democratic processes that we've what we've got and also don't be shy about giving people 
kind of a hard time or an organization so if the, if the company that you work with or the organization that you're working with isn't doing enough you know speak out and try and be that champion of change because most probably there'll be other people in the organization who think exactly the same things as you do uh, but it takes that first mover um, and that goes also with things like um, products that we produce as well you know telling uh, telling corporations companies that we won't buy their particular product mm -hmm. or we would prefer them to do these things and then you might want to get involved in various kind of organizations in a kind of establish organizations you know we don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel there's lots of organizations almost off the pet off the shelf that yeah. we could we could join and and there's going to be so many resources available to us when we join and then we're also going to be a valuable contribution to those kind of organizations so it's not even a marathon it's a it's a stroll <laughs> right and um you know, if the journey, if the journey is the destination, then it's got to be something that every step of the way we become more empowered, more enriched, happier, more fulfilled. Sounds like excellent advice. Thanks for that, James. And finally, then, so yes, 2050 is sort of touted out there, left, right, and centre. How do you think the world is going to look in 2050? I'm not going to fall for that. <laughs> it's the world. The world will look for. What will the world will look like is in some respects insensitive to what we're going to do, but in many other respects, it's going to be strongly determined by the things we do over the next few years. There are people who will, who, who want nothing more for us to conclude there's nothing we can do about it. Right. I think there's, there's an awful lot that we can do, but it really is up to us. Right. So it's not, not so much a question of, you know, do we have a crystal ball that we can look in? But to what extent do we want to imagine a fundamentally different world in as little as 30 years time? Now, what is going to be inescapable in 30 years time is that radically different world is inevitable and it's inevitable either because we're going to do the things we need to do to reorder our society such that we, you know, reduce our emissions. We reduce our impacts on biodiversity. Probably that could mean we need to talk about how we redistribute resources. Or we don't do those things, and then we're going to be looking at the sharp end of, you know, potentially runaway climate change and all that that entails. So by the middle of this century, we're looking at a disrupted world, but the type of disruption is still almost entirely up to us, right? So whatever, you know, whatever principles you've got, and everybody does, we've all got the things that are of value to us, the things that we care about, the things that would concern us, the things that we would maybe represent as a world in which we'd be happy to live in or a world in which we would like our children or future generations to grow up in right now that's the really important job that we've got we've got to build that vision we've got mm. to you know concoct what a really really exciting you know fair just equitable beautiful beautiful future would look like and then we've got to essentially argue for it and campaign for it and in some respects even fight for it because there are there are tremendous vested interests who don't want that. And it's not because they're mean or nasty. It's just they really can't see beyond the end of their, you know, the next shareholder dividend or something. It's they're locked into this kind of short term thinking. So I'd say you've got a really important job as that kind of imagineer mm -hmm. to think about what 2050 looks like and then. And then sell it. <laughs> Great idea. I like your, yeah, that's a good way of answering that question. Excellent. So on that note, James, thank you so much for being on this episode and I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I did. Well, thank you very much. It was great. It was, um, I look forward to hearing what people think about it. <laughs>
I'll give you some feedback. Thanks, James. Thanks. I absolutely loved having James on the podcast, and I'm grateful to him for providing a clear, scientific account of climate change and the issues around solving it. Despite having to hear the cold, hard facts, I found it empowering and hope you gain something valuable from it too. I highly recommend you check out the film narrated by James titled The Race Is On. You can find this in the show notes on my podcast page at www.theowlhoot.com forward slash podcast. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music and you for listening. If you want to hear more stories of people doing great things that positively impact our environment, then please do subscribe through your podcast app. I also encourage you to share this episode with everyone you know. Coming up next time is Nick Milestone, director at SIGMAT. He will be chatting to me about sustainable construction through the use of timber. Until next time, bye for now.